Our Bible reading tonight is from Zechariah chapter 10, and if you are using the Pew Bibles, it's on page 948. We will be reading the whole chapter. Zechariah chapter 10, reading from verse 1. Ask rain, ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone the vegetation in the field. For the, house, for the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for a lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tenth peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders of horses. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I have not rejected them. And I, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. They shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. Uh, between 1997 and 2009, for a period spanning over 13 years, much of southern Australia, and particularly Victoria, experienced years of drought. During those difficult years of dryness, the Victorian government made significant changes in the way that water was being managed in Victoria. Some of you will remember those years very well. The Victorian government encouraged people, for example, to invest in rainwater tanks. Uh, in the new place that Michelle and I just bought, there are three of them. A dual flush toilet system was introduced and the general public was encouraged to replace their shower heads with water efficient shower heads. Those who could afford it uh, even went to the extent of installing water recycling system at their house uh, that would recycle 
uh, the grey water collected at their home to water their gardens. All they had to do then is to put a sign at the front of their home, water tank or grey water being used. We had to keep a timer in our showers. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, we were not allowed to have showers for more than two or three minutes. All of these measures were put in place because we didn't know how long this drought would last. And we had to manage the crisis the best we could. People and businesses in metropolitan Victoria found it extremely inconvenient, but the people who were affected the most and the people who suffered the most were the farmers living in remote areas of Victoria. During this period of our history, 60% of the dairy farms in the murray Goulburn Basin went out of business. In some cases, water had become so expensive that some farmers had no other recourse but to send their animals to the slaughterhouse. There was an increase in mental health-related issues, especially in farming communities, with a 15% rise in suicide among men aged 30 to 49. The rate of unemployment rose in the farming sector uh, because farmers could not afford to pay their workers anymore. Uh, there was a mass resettlement of younger people leaving different farming communities in order to secure a future for themselves and their families in bigger cities. This period of our history is now known as the Millennium Drought. And according to History Council Victoria, communities, especially farming communities, were placed under acute and sustained stress with consequences of economic hardship, despair and depression, the breakdown of relationships and suicide. In other words, the prolonged period of drought did not only bring unbearable stress and anxiety upon people, it affected their lives, the lives of people on so many other levels. People lost their livelihood, people lost their businesses, people owed massive amounts of money to the bank, and many of them faced bankruptcy. Many families were put under an enormous amount of pressure. They had to work very, very hard. They had to be very creative with how they used their resources, and, and at the same time, they had to look after their families and their children. Relationships broke, marriage suffered, people died. The reason why I'm telling you all of this is so that we might have a better sense of the context in which Zechariah is writing. Zechariah is writing to a nation of people that has experienced long periods of drought. I just wanted you to have a sense that it was just not just a matter of not having long showers, but that it affected their lives on all sorts of levels. We can read about the, about the drought from Haggai chapter 1. Now, Haggai was a prophet who was ministering during the same period as Zechariah, and God said to his people in Haggai, the heavens have withheld their dew, and the earth its crop. I called for a drought on the fields, and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labors of your hands. So as we come to Zechariah chapter 10, let us remember the context. Let us remember the kind of conditions that the people have been facing. Not to excuse them, but to better understand their context. Zechariah is speaking to a people that have been experiencing drought and famine. There has been no rain, no crops, 
no grain, no wine, no oil. The produce of the land and the field have failed, and the labor of their hands have resulted in not much. And with this in mind, we come to Zechariah chapter 10. With this in mind, let us come to our first point tonight. Ask the Lord. These are the very first few words of Zechariah chapter 10. Ask rain from the Lord. The point is this. The Lord is calling his people to bring their needs before him. He's calling us to commit our needs to him and to learn to rely on him. So verses 1 to 2. Let me read uh, verse 1 for us again. As Zechariah 10 starts, Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain. From the Lord who makes the storm clouds. And he will give them showers of rain. To everyone the vegetation of the fields. From the outset, this seems like a simple enough command, isn't it? There has been a drought, and the people need rain. And Zechariah says, ask God. Ask God for rain. God is the maker of the storm cloud. Literally, he is the maker of the thunderbolts. Ask God. And he will give showers of rain. He will provide now, this is particularly significant in light of what God has just said to his people in the previous chapter. So, I hope you got your Bibles open there with you. Uh, at the end of chapter 9, in verse 17, God said to his people, how, oh, Zechariah reports from God, how, For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish. A new one, the young women. Zechariah has just been speaking about the goodness of God. How great is God's goodness, says Zechariah at the end of chapter 9. So when we put those two verses together, the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10, we have this. Ask God for rain. Why? Because He's good. God is good. Uh, in the church in Africa, on, on a couple of occasions where I've had the opportunity to uh, visit and preach, uh, if you were to say on any given occasion that God is good, the congregation would normally reply, all the time. And if you were to say all the time, they would reply, God is good. So it goes along the line of this, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. The Bible teaches us everywhere that God is good. We can read about God's goodness in the Psalms. Psalm 136, verse 1. Uh, Pastor Gerald um, read about this this morning in his call to worship. Give thanks to the Lord for He's good. So God is good. Ask Him for rain. His love endures forever. There is nothing malicious or deceitful or evil or manipulative in God. He's good. Ask Him. Psalm 119 and verse 68, we learn that God is good in all His ways. In other words, our God is, is good in all He does. He is infinitely good. Good in his being, good in his character, good in his actions. Stephen Lawson, the American uh, pastor who in his ministry as a pastor has reflected and preached extensively on the attributes of God, says this. God is the measure of everything we call good. So we put the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10 together. We have those two things. Ask God, for he is good. And there has been a period of drought. And rain is crucially important. The people need rain. It's affecting their livelihood. 
And the message of God to his people in, in verse 1 is this. Ask rain from the Lord. Ask in the season of the spring rain. That's when you ought to ask, says God. Ask from the Lord who makes the storm clouds. We have no control over the rain. We can prepare the land. We can plow. We can sow. We can plant. But we have no control over the rain. But God does. Ask, ask him, says Zechariah. He controls the taps of heaven, as it were. Ask the Lord, for he will give them showers of rain, every vegetation in the field. But here is the thing. There hasn't always been, that hasn't always been the case. There has been a drought. There has been an extended period of drought. And it's come from the Lord himself. There has been times when the Lord has not sent rain. So do you see the challenge here? Do you see the, the crisis of faith? The people of God have come to a desolate land. In many ways, they had to start from scratch. There was so much to do. We've spoken about this from the get-go, from Zechariah chapter 1. There was so much to do. Life in Judah was hard and challenging. They faced all kinds of opposition from their enemies around them who didn't want them to succeed. They worked hard, and we can read about this in Haggai chapter 1, but they didn't have much to show for it because the Lord didn't bless their harvest. In fact, the Lord brought a drought into the land. And now Zechariah is saying, ask the Lord. And so you, you can imagine the people thinking, is there any point? Will the Lord hear us? Will the Lord bless us this time? Can the Lord be trusted? Can the people rely on Him? Can we rely on Him? We've invested us, our seeds uh, into the land. We're hoping for, for rain, but the Lord hasn't answered us. And Zechariah says, ask the Lord. And you can imagine the people are perplexed by this. Is there any point? And it's clear by looking at verse 2 that some people took matters into their own hands and started looking for solution in the wrong places. Let me give you an example. The interest rate has been going up and up. Who knows what the Reserve Bank is going to do next? For someone who has just bought a new place, I can already see the impact that this is having on our budget as a family. Now, the cost of living has been going up as well. Our gas bill has gone up. The price of petrol has increased. But imagine now that the interest rate continues to go up. And imagine that it stays up for an extended period of time. And imagine that for some reason or another, uh, my wife or myself end up uh, losing our jobs. And imagine that one thing leading to another, we end up losing our family home. Would we be tempted to doubt God's goodness to us at this point in time? Would we be tempted? to doubt the goodness of God. 
would we find it hard to sing, Great is thy faithfulness? Would that situation bring us to the point where we are so desperate and disappointed that we start looking for solutions in ungodly places? Would I quit ministry and go back to the world of sales and marketing? Have you ever, in a time of spiritual weakness, in a time of spiritual crisis, been tempted to look for solutions in places that God would disapprove? Well, this is what happened in verse 2. Some people took matters into their own hands and they started looking for solutions in the wrong places. So please look with me at verse 2. This is what the Lord says. For the household gods utter nonsense, but some people went to them. And the diviners see lies, but some people went to find them. They tell false dreams, but some people believed in those dreams and give empty consolation. Verse 2 seems to be telling us that in their desperation, maybe, or ignorance, maybe, or lack of faith and trust in God, maybe, the people started to run to idols. Whatever the case might be, in their times of need, the people turned to the pagan idols. They went to the diviners for answers. And again, context is important, isn't it? Drought, an extended period of drought. Was this the result of them being exposed to Babylonian religion for 70 years? Maybe they saw what the Babylonian did and thought, why not try? Was this a sign that their hearts were not completely in the right place with God? Could it be both? Did the drought cause a crisis of faith in their hearts? Did the drought cause them to doubt the goodness of God towards them? Again, we, we are not told the exact reason but what is clear is that God disapproves of their actions and their foolishness. Look at what God says to them in verse 2. The idols utter nonsense. In other words, you've wasted your time. So whatever they imagined the idols were going to say, God says to them that it was nonsense. And the diviners are no better. Whatever they imagined to see were lies. Their dreams were false. Their consolation empty. The diviners pretended that they could see the future, but they were nothing but charlatans. They deceived people, and whatever consolation or hope they gave to people was vain. It's exactly the same word that Solomon uses in the book of Ecclesiastes when he says, uh, futility, a puff of smoke, it's an empty hope. It's a false hope. Have you ever, in a time of spiritual weakness, been tempted to look for answers for your needs and for your life in places other than in God and His Word. My guess is that you didn't go and, and see the fortune teller. I doubt that you did that. My guess is that you didn't check your horoscope. I doubt that you did that. But still, instead of going to God and His Word, were you tempted to go somewhere else? In my preparations, I found this quote from John Frame. He's a, a theologian. 
And he says, God's goodness is not always obvious on the surface, especially when we experience injustice or suffering. But in the end, in the end, we shall see that even that injustice and that suffering manifests the goodness of God. So the beginning of Zechariah chapter 10 is teaching us two things. First, it's warning us. It's warning us about the pitfall of looking for answers and solutions in the wrong places, in ungodly places. Zechariah chapter 10 is showing us a situation in which the people of God had a real and tangible need. They needed food. They needed the, the comfort and the assurance that it would rain. They needed to eat. They needed to feed their families. They needed to take care of their children. They needed rain. But instead of trusting in God to provide, they turned to the false gods of their time. So that's the first thing we learn from Zechariah chapter 10. The pitfalls of looking for answers and solutions in the wrong places, especially during hard times. The second thing that Zechariah is teaching us in those verses is to learn to bring our needs to God. Zechariah is teaching us to trust in the Lord's goodness. Ask the Lord, he says. He is teaching the people to trust, to put their trust in God's goodness to them. Zechariah is exhorting the people of his time to bring their needs to God in prayer, which is something that is echoed everywhere in the Bible, that we ought to bring our needs to God in prayer. In Zechariah chapter 10, the people of God went looking for answers for the, in, the, uh, in the wrong places. And if we read Haggai chapter 1, we will find that God did send a drought to them, but God did this because they failed to prioritize the rebuilding of the temple. But two years have gone by since that sermon from Haggai chapter 1. And the rebuilding of the temple is progressing well. We spoke about this already in the previous chapters in Zechariah. And from the beginning of Zechariah chapter 8, God is doing a new work. Things are starting to move. God is start giving all these promises to his people that a time of restoration and blessing is coming, has dawned. God promises to them that Jerusalem will again be a city of joy and peace and reign, asked the Lord. The Bible teaches us that God is good. The Bible teaches us that God is gracious, that He does not remain angry forever, that He is merciful, that He is a compassionate God, and that He loves His people with a jealous love and he desires for them to be restored in their relationship with him. God says this to his people in Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 15, I purpose in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. Fear not. In Zechariah chapter 10, we see God extending his favor and grace to his people, even when they rejected him, even when they turned to the other gods for guidance and security. God still extend his favor, extend his favor and grace to them. Ask, says the Lord, ask me for rain. The book of Zechariah is only a shadow of the ultimate restoration between God and his people that will happen at the cross. 
The book of Zechariah, the beginning of Zechariah chapter 10, when God is extending his grace to his people, is just a shadow of the greater restoration that God will do at the cross. At the cross, there we will see God extending his favor and grace to his people, even when everyone was going to reject him and rejected him. At the cross, God was renewing his covenant. In other words, his relationship, his commitment, his promises to his people. And how did he do that? He did this through the blood of his son, Jesus. At the cross, God showed his jealous love for his people, for us. By sealing this relationship, this new covenant, with the blood of his own son who died for us. This is our God. He is faithful. He is true. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is forgiving. He is compassionate. He is good. Can he be trusted? Yes, he can. And he delights in the prayers of his people. And he says to us, ask. He calls us, he calls us to entrust our needs, our concerns, our fears, our worries to him and our very lives to him. For he gives true consolation, true hope and help can only be found in him. There is no other God. And Jesus taught uh, this same principle to his disciples to ask and to seek and to knock. Jesus preached this as well. Turn to God with your needs. Uh, and in Christ, we know that we can approach the throne of God with confidence. We can read about this in the book of Hebrews. In Christ, we know that if we ask according to God's will, God will hear us and answer our requests. We can read about this in 1 John chapter 5. And in Christ, we can have the confidence that in all things, whether we can explain it or not, whether we can see it or not, God is always working for the good of his people. And his timing might upset us, but his timing is always, always perfect. And his purposes can be a mystery to us, but his purposes are always, always good. For God is the measure of all that is good in this world. So point number one, ask God. Turn to him. Bring your needs, your requests to God in prayer. Bring your concerns to him. Bring everything to God in prayer, in faith, in trust. Why should we do this? This is what Zechariah uh, explains to us in the second half, uh, in, the, in the other verses. Why should we do this? Well, the Lord cares for his people. So that's our second point tonight. Why ask? Why turn to God? Why entrust our lives to him? Well, the Lord cares. He cares for his people. He is trustworthy. He is faithful to his promises. And he's calling us to learn to lean on him. So verses 3 to 12. When the Lord saw, uh, his, pe uh, the Lord saw his people at the end of verse 2, looking for answers in the wrong places, looking for their needs to, to be met in the wrong places, the Lord described his people like this. Please look with me at the end of verse 2. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. When the Lord looked at his people in their desperation, going to, 
to the idols that cannot speak, to the diviners that speak false lies, the Lord had compassion on his people. He looked at them and he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord saw how lost his people were. They had no one to lead them in the ways of God. And so the Lord became angry with the leaders of his people. Look at verse 3. My anger is hot against the shepherds. I will punish the leaders. Some people believe that this is a reference to the foreign leaders. Some people believe that this is God's judgment over the pagan leaders who introduce idolatry and divination into Israel. But other people believe that this is God condemning the local leaders for taking this on board, for adopting it and promoting idolatry and divination within Israel. God is, some people believe that God, what God is doing is condemning those within Israel who saw this as an option and said, go for it. And God is angry. He says that he will punish the bad shepherds. In fact, the rest of the chapter is a series of things that God commits himself to be doing. He promises he will do. So from verses 4 to 5, God promises to raise a new leadership. More importantly, God promises them again the coming of a greater shepherd, the coming of a Messiah. He is described in verse 4 as the cornerstone, the tent peg, the battle bow, three pictures of strength and stability and reliability. This is not the first time in the book of Zechariah that the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, is being foretold through out the book of Zechariah, God's blessing upon his people are both present and future. It is present in the sense that they've returned to the land. It's present in the sense that God is helping them to rebuild the temple. It's present in the sense that God is re-establishing his priesthood and his covenant with his people, but it's also future. The ultimate time of restoration and blessing would come when the Messiah would appear. And Zechariah anticipates this future time when Jesus would come to fulfill all of God's promises to be the greater shepherd. And he would come to build, to build a Jerusalem without walls. Zechariah prophesied about this in chapter 2. Jesus would come to dress all of God's people with rich garments of his righteousness, as he did with Joshua in chapter 3. Those garments are given. They're not earned. They're a gift to those who repent of their sins and turn to God in faith. Jesus would come to finish his work of salvation so that his church, the lampstand, might forever be indwelled with the power of the Holy Spirit, like he saw in chapter 4. Jesus will come to fulfill the vision of Ze that Zechariah saw in chapter 6 of a priest who is crowned king. Jesus would in time come to be the king who would ride in Jerusalem on a donkey. Jordan preached about this last week to bring salvation to his people, fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9. And now here in our passage, the Messiah is described as the one who would be a better shepherd over the people of God. We see this perfectly fulfilled in the life of Jesus, the good shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep at the cross, Jesus didn't deceive his sheep. He didn't make empty promises to them. He didn't give them false hopes like the idols and the diviners did. He came to give life, to give his life for his sheep so that they might be saved 
forever and restored to a loving relationship with God. Jesus is the shepherd that Zechariah foresees. The shepherd that would guide and feed and spiritually nourish his sheep so that none would be lost, as we read in John chapter 17. Jesus is a shepherd who would entrust his sheep into the care of his most trusted friends, his apostles. We're reminded of the words of Jesus to Peter in John chapter 21. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. What does Jesus say to him? Take care of my sheep. Take care of my sheep. Three times. In verses 6 and 7 of Zechariah chapter 10, the Lord promises to strengthen the house of Judah and the house of Joseph. In other words, he promises to reunite the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel, something that would only begin to happen in the ministry of Jesus and after Pentecost, as the gospel message goes to Samaria and to the end of the earth, calling and bringing all of God's scattered people under the same banner, the banner of Christ. In verse 8, God will whistle, as it were, His people to bring them back as a shepherd, whistles His sheep back to Himself. And when you put all of these pictures together, you read through all of these promises, uh, one main point becomes clearer and clearer. Zechariah is making, the point that Zechariah is making is this one. The Lord is faithful to His promises. The Lord will accomplish all this. The, the two words that dominate the passage are those two words, I will, I will. I will. This is God talking to His people. All through the chapters, the Lord says, I will. I will send you a better shepherd. I will come to strengthen you. I will come to deliver you. I will bring you compassion. I will. It's repeated again and again in the chapter. So when the Lord saw the condition of His people, that they were like sheep without a shepherd, what did He do? He stepped in. He stepped in to rescue them. He stepped in to give them hope of a better leadership. He stepped in to warn the bad shepherds. He stepped in with the promise to help them and strengthen them and transform them. And for them, it meant looking ahead to those days. It meant living in faith. And a lot of them would, would not see those days. They would not live to see this happening. We're looking at, back to this and we're saying, thank you, Lord, that in Christ you fulfill all your, your promises, but for a lot of them it was living by faith in all of those promises. But here is the key verse, it's in verse 3, and the reason is given to us why. Why is it that God's intervening? Why is it that we should turn to Him? Why should we entrust our lives to Him? And the reason why God intervenes is mentioned halfway through verse 3. Do you see the reason there in verse 3? For the Lord of hosts cares, cares for his flock. The Lord cares. The God of the universe cares for his people. The God who, who made the atom and the subatomic particles cares for us. The God who made all things is like a shepherd who cares for his people. He's committed to restoring a people to himself. This is the grand story of the Bible. God is revealing the glory of His grace to His people by rescuing them and restoring them to Him, for He cares. 
In the Garden of Eden, our fellowship and relationship with God was broken because of our sins. But God did not abandon His creation. But He chose to save the people for Himself. And this is what God is doing throughout the Bible. He's showing grace and mercy and patience again and again towards a rebellious people who turn to other gods. But our God is a gracious God. He's a forgiving God. And He does it because He cares for His people. God is for us. And He has demonstrated His love and care for us by fulfilling His promise to us of the greater shepherd. And He calls us to look to Him in our times of need. He calls us to rely on Him. He calls us to trust in Him and to turn to Him for help, for answers, and not to the false gods of our world. So who do you lean on in your life? And I will close with this. Where do you go for answers? Where do you go for hope? For us, our hope is in God, the maker of heaven and earth. Creation listens to Him. The clouds, the rain, the storms, the waves, they belong to Him. Our trust and our hope is in the God who made all things. His dominion extends over all of creation. Who do you lean on in your life? For us, our hope is in God who loves us and gave us His Son that we might be forgiven and spared the condemnation to come. Who do you lean on in life? For us, our hope is in God who in Christ His Son has given to us a great and wonderful shepherd who laid down His life for us that we might be saved, that we might be given salvation, a new hope in heaven, life everlasting, in the new world to come. Who do you lean on in life? For us, our hope is in God, who knows and controls and is sovereign over everything, everything that happens in this world. Who do you lean on in life? Let us pray. Gracious and loving Father in heaven, we thank you that you love us. We thank you, Lord, that you care for us. We thank you, Lord, for being our shepherd and for guiding us and for feeding us and for nourishing us and for sending unto us Jesus, the good shepherd. We thank you, Lord, that in him all of your promises are yes and amen. We thank you, Lord, that in our darkest and deepest times of need, we know that the God of the universe is for us, that He loves us, that He has given His Son to deliver us, and that He will not abandon us. We thank you, Lord, that in our times of needs and desperation, we know that you, God, our God, has all the resources at His disposal to help us. We thank you, Lord for your amazing grace to us in the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit that lives in us, that comforts us and in our times of need. And we pray, Lord, that we would learn each day uh, to learn to trust in you and to lean on you and to rely on you. We thank you, Lord, for Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.